turn with me to Luke uh, chapter 15, we'll be in verses 1 through 2, and then verses 11 through 32. Starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now flipping to verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And when he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now now his older brother was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But when he was angry, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never obeyed disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends but when his son but when this son of yours came who was devou- who has devoured your property with prostitutes you killed the fattened calf for him and he said to him son you are always with me and all that is mine is yours it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found this is the word of the lord thanks be to god All right, what Tyler just read for us is one of Jesus' best known and probably most beloved parables. Um, Even a number of non-Christians have heard the story of the prodigal son, this kid that basically takes what he thinks he has coming to him, rebels against the father, rebels against the family, runs away, sends his brains out until he runs out of money at which point his friends all disperse and he's left on his own and he comes kind of like crawling back to the father in repentance and in shame and instead of rejection finds the loving open arms of the father. What many don't realize, because we often parachute into that parable, is that this is actually the third in a series of three parables where Jesus talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost Son, And when we drop in on verse 11, starting with like a certain man had two sons, 
you miss the context that I think is so important, which is why we read verses 1 and 2 this morning. And I want you to note again, so look at this with me, verses 1 and 2. These three parables are a direct response to the grumbling of the religious elites of Jesus' day, saying of Jesus, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And here's what's going on. By this point in Jesus' ministry, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, the rabbis, they are well aware of the fact that Jesus, and I would say at a minimum, is a prophet kind of in the vein of Elijah and Elisha, meaning he comes speaking oracles of God, but he also has this spirit-filled power to do miraculous things, signs and wonders, heal people, cast out demons. So he's this effective teacher. He's a miracle worker. He clearly has God's spirit. They're envious of his authority. They're envious of the crowds of people that are following him instead of them. But here's what the religious leaders are thinking, and this is captured in verses 1 and 2. They're thinking, if you're really from God, then you would hang out with people like us. Good people, righteous people, moral people. You would not be hanging out with the lowlifes of our culture and our society. The true Messiah wouldn't be caught dead with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He'd be celebrating how awesome we are. Okay? And the scribes and the Pharisees, this is the important concept for this morning. They believed they deserved recognition and special treatment from God. And we have a word for that. The word is entitlement. So the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders are rolling in with a sense of entitlement. And now Jesus is going to tell a series of three parables. And we're just going to look at the third of them this morning. But he tells a series of parables that are really addressing this heart issue of entitlement. Okay, so what I love is Jesus just goes toe-to-toe with this attitude this simmering heart attitude that they carry. And he's going to show them in this parable both the true heart of the Father and also their place in the story, which is why this third parable in particular is so important. So this morning I said we're talking about entitlement. We're going to look at the symptoms, the source, and the solution to entitlement. So like what it looks like, how would I recognize this in my life, then where is that coming from in my heart, and then what do I do? do with it if I recognize that. All right, so the parable begins, and this is verse 12. The the younger son comes to the father and just literally says, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And that's blatant entitlement, right? His, His father is still alive, and he's basically saying, I'm entitled to my inheritance now. Give it to me. The elder brother is a bit more subtle all throughout. And that's why I think it's important to identify point one, the symptoms of entitlement. And I want to skip kind of toward the end of the story now where the prodigal has gone away. He's sinned. Now he's returned home. The father is throwing a huge party. The elder brother's off working. He hears music. He hears dancing. He comes in, discovers what's going on, and just pitches a fit, right? And the father comes to him, and he pleads with him. And he's like, this is not an appropriate time for you to be acting the way you're acting. Because my, my younger son, your brother, was dead or as good as dead. Now he's alive. 
And now every word that the elder brother speaks is so important as Jesus kind of maps this out. So look at verse 29 with me. This is the first symptom of entitlement. Verse 29, he says, he's talking to his father. He says, look, these many years I have served you. And I want to just point out that is not the language of sonship. That is the language of slavery. Because the first symptom of entitlement is that you view yourself as God's employee. You're working for God, therefore you deserve a wage. And sometimes like this elder brother, you feel like I've been working so long, so hard, so well, I deserve a substantial wage. And that's what the entitled son is thinking. He's not working for the father because he loves the father. He's not working for the father to contribute meaningfully to the family's reputation or the family's well-being, like just to provide for them. He's clearly working to earn something. He's working to deserve something. He's working to be compensated for something. And I wonder if, if you and I ever drift into this sort of thinking where, and maybe it slipped into our prayer, some of these things are either subconscious or maybe it shows up as we're praying where it's like, God, I'm working really hard for you down here. I'm making sacrifices left and right. I'm not using my time and I'm not using my money in the way that so many other people are and I could. I'm not off doing what everyone else my age is doing. I'm serving you. I'm serving my family. I'm serving my coworkers. I'm serving my church. So why do all these other people have it so good and I'm still struggling? And you see what you've done is you're not thinking of God as a father. You're thinking of him as an employer. And it's like, I'm working, working, working for you. Where's the wage that fairly compensates me for what I'm doing? That's what the elder brother is thinking. A second symptom here is that you overestimate your own goodness. So going on in verse 29, he says, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. And I know that's hyperbole, but come on. In this moment, he is simmering with self-righteousness, with self-pity, with this judgmental, petty, angry, unloving, unforgiving attitude toward his brother. And he's like, I've never sinned against you, Father. And unfortunately, that's often the attitude of someone who feels entitled is that you're kind of boosting and propping up your own behavior. And you're overlooking the stuff that you actually are struggling with in terms of sin and brokenness. But you're highlighting the areas of success. Or, or don't we do this in church circles too where... There's some like quote unquote like acceptable sins in church culture where we're just like, oh, that's, that's just what good Christian people do. And then we pick this subset of other sins that we don't think that we're capable of. And we're like, that's the serious stuff. So we, we downplay the actual sin. We boast in our righteousness. And what we're trying to do is say like, see, see in my performance, see in my righteousness with these rose colored glasses that I wear see how God owes me something pretty major because my motives are pure, my actions are pure. It's a clear sign of an entitled heart. Now, this third symptom goes hand in hand with the last two. So if, if we're consciously or even subconsciously tracking our output for God as an employee, um, thinking that we're crushing it in terms of both our work ethic and our morality, 
we'll almost always end up concluding that God is stingy. This is the third symptom, is that we underestimate the goodness of God. So even as we're overestimating our own goodness, we're underestimating his goodness. You see this here in verse 29 where he's saying, I I did all these things for you, Father. And then here it is. He says, yet you never gave me. You never gave me a beast to slaughter so that we could have a nice roast or barbecue with my friends. And you see the contrast in verse 31 where the father is going to answer, son, all that is mine is yours. All that is mine. Like I wasn't withholding a cow. You wanted to have a party with your friends. He's basically saying like, it's fine. Like I've always been here and I've always shared what is mine with you. But you see this gap between how he's estimating the goodness of God and what the actual goodness of God is like. And I kind of picture it like this. If you have those, not like a new bathroom scale, but the old scales where you have a a known weight on one side and you're stacking up stuff and they kind of balance out like a teeter-totter. So basically what an entitled person is doing is they're, they're stacking boxes of goodness on their own side while like kind of like just removing stuff from God's side. Like, and, and what they're doing is creating an imbalance where they're like, okay, see how I deserve something now from God because of this kind of algorithm going on in the mind. Now the fourth symptom of entitlement is you're outraged by grace. And this is kind of the bottom line of all of this. Um, The elder brother is livid because the younger brother got something that he didn't deserve. And let's be clear, he didn't deserve it. And we can agree in the parable that the younger son already got the share that was coming to him. So if he's coming home and the father's doing anything additional for him after he's gone off and sinned, like nothing is owed to him. And, and the, the elder brother's literally thinking, what my brother deserves is he deserves shame. He deserves to be cut off from the family. He deserves punishment. So how, how can dad just take him back as if nothing happened? And not even as if nothing bad happened, but almost as like he was out there doing something really positive, and now we're going to reward him. And the bottom line here is that grace is, is maddening, to entitled legalistic people. Because you always think I'm getting less than what I deserve. Other people are getting more than what they deserve. How how does that work? And entitled people want life to be a meritocracy. Like you do good things, you get rewarded. You do bad things, you get punished. And that's how it should work. And the entitled elder brothers like, what is this insane third category of like you do bad, but you get good back? How does that work? And again, Jesus is showing us the heart of the Father. But he's like, how can love be unconditional? How can forgiveness just be offered so freely before? And he could be like, my brother hasn't even, he hasn't even proven himself. How do we know he's serious? Like, it's easy to come back when you've run out of money. But he should have to prove himself that he really means business with forgiveness, with repentance. But uh, to paraphrase Philip Graham Ryken, the elder brother's like, grace should be unavailable to people like that. And grace is unnecessary for people like me. Like, I don't need grace because I'm good. Just give me what I deserve. And do you see how an entitled heart basically eradicates grace and the language of grace and the behavior of grace 
from culture, from relationships. It gets rid of grace altogether. So where does this come from? Okay, so those are some symptoms. You can even look at that in your own life of like, am I, am I boasting in my goodness? Am I kind of dishonest about my badness? Am I making myself look better than I actually am? Am I somehow like knocking stuff off of God's side? Like, no, he's not that good. He, he could be better. Now, where is that coming from? The source of entitlement. And here it is. An entitled heart is a heart that says over and over in a thousand different ways, God owes me. That is the source of entitlement is just leaning into this idea and just being obsessed with this idea, God owes me. And again, you see in verses one and two, the scribes and Pharisees in the opening verses that are thinking the real Messiah would never hang out with pimps and prostitutes and tax collectors and traitors. He'd hang out with people like me because I'm awesome. God owes me. And then you see the attitude of the prodigal, give me what you owe me. And then you see the attitude of the elder brother, dad owes me. I've done nothing but good, nothing but working hard. Now he's wasted a share of my inheritance giving it to my brother. How is this even possible? And I wonder where we detect that attitude in our own heart where God owes me better finances right now. God owes me better health right now. God owes me a better marriage, a better job, a better car, a better, and we could go on and on and on just thinking God owes me. And again, I, I feel this showing up most often in my life kind of subtly in prayer uh, where it's kind of like, you ever do the prayer where you are kind of piling up stuff of like, you're not just saying your request, you're telling God why he should grant your request. Like, God, I've done this, and I've sacrificed this, and I still don't have this, and I gave away that. Um, So anyway, here's my request. And what you're trying to do is put God in your debt so that instead of relying on his love for you, you're relying on a wage. And I just wonder if just that simple heart attitude, God owes me. Could it be the root sin beneath many other sins in our lives, like discontentment, like jealousy or envy, like some of the interpersonal conflict that we have with someone that we think is getting something, as we confessed a few moments ago, that is getting something we don't feel like they deserve that. Or the sin of judging others while justifying self. The sin of anger like the brother here. The sin of despising other people, looking down on other people. The sin of bitterness. Is it possible that all of these things are coming from the same heart? God owes me. And if you see any of this in yourself, as I see in me, um, there's a solution. Okay, a couple things here. Let me just show you these from the text and illustrate them, but... Solution to entitlement, first of all, learn to see yourself as God sees you. And I love this in the parable when the, you notice, first of all, the prodigal comes home and and he knows, like in this culture where my father's reputation is based in part on like how good are his sons in particular, I've deeply scarred my father's reputation by my sin. So he knows in coming home, 
you know, and we didn't read this part of this, or we read the, read the part of the story, I didn't rehearse it, but he's kind of like muttering to himself this whole like repentance speech that he's going to give his dad when he gets home. And a part of that that's so important is, I know I'm not worthy to be your son. Like I forfeited that. But I also know the kind of man you are. And so if I'm going to be a slave, I want to be indebted to you. I want to be enslaved to you. And you look at verse 31, or excuse me, verse 24, where the father, when the son comes home and he just runs to him and wraps him in his embrace, and then he's immediately off telling other people, This is my son. Verse 24, this is my son. That's grace. That's something that we can't forfeit in Christ. And then responding to this vicious verbal abuse of the elder brother, the father goes to him as well. And in verse 31, he begins like this. He says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. And in this most calm and gracious manner, the father saying, number one, you're my son, not a slave. And number two, as my sons... You already have more in me, and I've already given you more than you can ever imagine. You're just not seeing it. And I love that the father continues to welcome both of his sons as sons. He continues to give them his presence, his love, his attention, not withholding any good gift from them that would genuinely make their lives better. And he's saying, you don't, you don't need to earn my favor and blessing. You already have it. And do you know that that's the way the Father looks at you in Christ? That as you simply place your faith in Jesus, his son, the Father looks at you as adopted sons and daughters and just says, nothing can ever wreck that. You are not a slave. You are not working for me. And I think the first way that we get over this heart of God owes me is that we kind of flip the script and we see ourselves as God sees us and we just say, man, I'm an adopted child of God. And I've already gotten an inheritance that is, that is infinite, that is eternal, that is massive and incomprehensible. It's already mine in Jesus. So learn to see yourself as the Father sees you. Then secondly, learn to pursue what your Father pursues. And I think this is one of the startling contrasts in the text. This massive gap between the heart of the Father and the heart of the elder brother. That the Father can, can just shame and embarrass and humiliate himself by just like lifting up his robes and running to the Son as no one would do in that culture. That's not what fathers did. But he's just running and embracing, watching, waiting, forgiving, weeping, laughing. And he's identifying with this son. He's holding this son. And you contrast that with the totally dismissive attitude of the elder brother. In verse 30, you notice he can't even say his name. And it's not his brother. He says to the father, he says, this, this son of yours... When you talk about a disassociation, this, this son of yours. And you see the heart of the father pursuing the younger brother, associating, identifying, and the heart of the elder brother just like, no, I'm, I'm doing the exact opposite. 
And I look in this text, and when I'm saying this big point, like learn to pursue what your father pursues. So you look back at this text and you say, okay, what, what was the elder brother pursuing? He was pursuing status. He was pursuing recognition. He was pursuing a blessing. He wanted a financial blessing. He wanted his father's commendation. He wants what's coming to him. And that's what his life's pursuit is about, those things. Uh, you could even look at the, the younger brother, the prodigal. Okay, what's the prodigal pursuing? Well, in the moment, he's just pursuing pleasure. He's instant gratification. Like, whatever makes me happy right now, no matter who gets hurt, that's what I want. But then you say, what does the father pursue? He pursues his filthy failure of a rebellious son, and he pursues this seething, self-righteous failure of a religious son. And in doing so, he's actually forfeiting the very thing that his older son was pursuing. The father has to give up status. The father has to give up recognition, reputation, in order to pursue both the rebel and the religious. And by the way, in this culture, we know that the elder brother should have been the one to pursue. It's like your younger brother leaves. Like, dad's got the farm. It's on you to go and pursue. But entitled people don't see broken, sinful people and think, oh, I should go after them. They think, not my problem. Not my problem. Because I'm, I'm entitled to something better than that. Why wrap my life up in another life that I know is just going to cause hard conversations, sacrifice on my part. It's going to be a challenge. I don't want that. But we overcome this heart of God owes me by learning to pursue what the Father pursues. Thirdly, learn to celebrate what your Father celebrates. And this is just kind of riffing off the last point, but you know entitled people can only celebrate really one thing, and that's self. It's an awesome little party of one so often. Like I, I, you know, and if you know like deeply entitled people and you know you're always in their company and they're, they're thinking less of you and more of themselves and whatever they do have, they, they can't be grateful for it for a moment because they're thinking they deserve more. So they're celebrating self. In stark contrast, what I want to point out here is the father loves to celebrate fruits of grace. I'll put it that way. He loves to celebrate grace which is emanating from him, but he also loves to celebrate fruits of grace. And this is really cool that this is the heart of our father, that he's giving us something free and undeserved and unrepayable. And the Bible says it's like, it's like seeds. So he's like planting seeds of grace and those go down into the soil of our hearts and they begin to sprout and they begin to bring forth life and there are three things I see here in particular. There's, there's repentance, there's restoration, and there's resurrection that the Father is celebrating. And he, the Father's heart is just like, yeah, your brother sinned. He, he sinned terribly. He hurt me. He hurt you. He hurt himself. But he's repentant. This is, this is sinful things becoming clean. And in God's economy of grace... Sinful things being made clean is something worth celebrating. The restoration of like broken things becoming new, the resurrection of dead things becoming alive, this is what we celebrate. So learn to celebrate what your father celebrates. And then finally, 
Shift your focus from what God owes you to what you owe God. And uh, we can just get this out of the way. First of all, God owes you and me nothing. God owes us nothing. Like the story of Scripture is he, he made us. He fashioned us in his image and likeness. And immediately we all go astray in our heart. We serve other, the Bible says, idols or gods. Things that we love, treasure, trust, fear, pursue in place of or more than God. And God sees this brokenness and he sees there's nothing that they can do. There's nothing that we can do to fix ourselves. So I will send my son to live the life they should have lived and to die the death that they deserve to die and to rise from the dead and to call them home by grace, call them into my family by grace. Okay, so if, if you've gone astray like the younger brother, just plunging into rebellion for a season of life, or you've gone astray like the elder brother, just plunging into self-righteousness. And by the way, you, you notice that, that both sons are just, even though they're doing exactly opposite things, they're doing the same thing at heart which is to hold the father at arm's length. Neither son needs the father at some point in the story. I don't need you because I'm going to sin. I don't need you because I'm righteous. So God doesn't owe us anything. Now, this is a, not a trick question, but it's a tricky question. What do you owe God? I think a theologically correct answer is everything and nothing. Everything. I owe God everything because he, he literally gave his life for me when I deserve nothing from him. So we could think in one sense, like if I gave him all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my strength, all of my money forever, I'm still not able to repay him, but I, but I wish I could. And you could say, I'm a debtor to this ridiculously extravagant grace. I owe God everything. But I think it's also true that you owe God nothing. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you had a massive debt that you couldn't pay, and the lender came to you and said, you know what, I'm just, I'm canceling your debt. Would you continue to say, I, I owe the lender that money? You'd be like, I, I, I owe him. No, the, the whole point of a cancellation of a debt, therefore the whole point of forgiveness is you actually don't owe a debt. And I love that this is, this is the Father's heart that we're getting to the bottom of, that if we could walk through life day after day just thinking, because of what Christ has done for me, I owe God everything and I owe God nothing. And do you see how that turns the attitude? Because now, I, I think on the surface, your actions continue to be like you're, you're pouring into the things that are near and dear to the heart of the Father, but your motive has completely changed. If you only think, I owe God nothing, you're probably just out like the prodigal. If you think, I owe God everything, you're, you're probably somewhat like the elder brother of like work, 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 work to prove yourself. But if you hold both intention, now you're able to invest in the Father's mission, the Father's faith and love and grace, but you're doing it with joy. You're doing it with, out of a heart of gratitude for all that he's done for you. So 
this is Jesus encountering entitlement. And I would say, you know, when you kind of stub your toe on entitlement on your, in your own heart, just welling up that feeling of like, man, God owes me this or that or the other. Pursue what God pursues. Celebrate what God celebrates. See yourself as a son or daughter, not a slave. And then just see that you owe God everything and nothing simultaneously. Therefore, you're free to just commence serving him with joy, with gratitude, out of a heart of love, not out of a debtor's ethic. Okay? See that you owe God everything and nothing. Serve him with joy.